Good morning, folks. My name is Greg, and uh, today we're reading chapter 13 of Hebrews, starting at verse 1. It's called Concluding Exhortations. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of his lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honourably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those for, from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. And we give you thanks for this, the word of God. Thank you, Greg. Well, well done. You've made it to the end of the book of Hebrews. It's been 
long journey, persevering, enduring, a lot of hard work, but good for our souls. And it is the grand finale, so how should we end? Well, we've got almost two chapters, which means the sermon's going to be twice as long. So brace yourself. No, God will have mercy on us. It won't be that long. Let me pray, and we'll have a look at this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, which is living and active. We thank you for how you speak to us still, penetrating to the deepest recesses of our hearts and souls. We pray that you'll change us as we sit under your word once again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'd like you to imagine, if, if it were to happen, if Jesus were to return right here and right now, in this very moment, what do you think Jesus would see? What do you think Jesus would notice in our church family, amongst us, in how we live, how we relate? What do you think Jesus would see in our hearts? Now, I'm sure some of us might be thinking, well, I'm glad I didn't sleep in this morning and I made it to church. At least he finds me in church. But let's just say if that were to happen, Jesus were to return now, it's the end of the world. It's judgment day. It's heaven and hell. What would he see amongst us and in our hearts? Well, he might find amongst us, some of us, we're doing really well. Life is going smoothly. We're happy. We're cheerful. We're content. Family life is harmonious. Our health, it's, it's all firing on all cylinders. And it's almost Christmas, so we're happy. But I suspect Jesus will also find amongst us, some of us, that we're just weary. We're just tired. We're exhausted. We're worried. We're anxious. It's been a long, tiring, draining year. Drama after drama, crisis after crisis, health issues one after another. And then there might be some of us in church who might notice, well, you look very different in church than what you are at home or at work or at school. You know, it seems like you're leading a double life. But then what if he scrutinizes deep within, scrutinizes our hearts? What will he find there? Will he find amongst some of us a heart that is weighed down by bitterness, holding grudges, unforgiveness? What will he find amongst us? Will he be disappointed in us? What do you think? He looks down upon us, he comes, and he sees St. Stephen's. Will he be disappointed? Will he be in sorrow and dismay? Because he notices the warnings in Hebrews coming through here. Some of us drifting away. Some of us not holding firm. Some of us still infants, still on milk, not growing up into solid food yet. Some falling away. Some shrinking back. Some giving up and not running the race that has been marked before us. Or will he find amongst us a church that brings him great joy and delight? We're holding nothing back from him. Our life is not our own. I mean, it's worth thinking about, isn't it? Because it makes it so somber how we live our lives. If Jesus were to return now, and this is it. This is it. Well, as we come to the end of the book of Hebrews, the encouragement for us is, well, how should we be found? What, what, what do you want Jesus to see in us and amongst us and together? Well, well, three things as we end this letter. The first is, we want to be found as people who listen to God's word. Who live out God's word. 
and we do so for the glory of Christ. As simple as that. We listen to him, we live it out, and we do so for the glory of Christ. And so firstly, let's have a look. If Jesus were to return, how do we want to be found? Well, we want to be found as people who listen to his word. We listen, we cherish what Jesus has to say to us. We cherish what God has to say to us. In fact, it's how the book of Hebrews began. Do you remember? Many, many weeks ago. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1. In the past, how did God speak? God spoke through the prophets in many ways and in various ways at many times. But in the last days, in the days in which we're living as we await the return of Jesus, God has spoken how? Not through, but by his Son. Which means God has spoken to our world. Many do not hear it, but God has spoken to our world clearly, definitively, and finally. And the question for us is, are we listening? Will we listen? You see, the temptation for the Hebrews was always to revert back to the old way, to shrink back, to turn away from Jesus and to go back to Moses, to go back to the tabernacle, to go back to the old covenant. But the encouragement is, no, look to Jesus. Our eyes fix on him. We have something that is far better now, a far better promise, a far better word. And so the question still is, will you listen? And so what we see here at the end of chapter 12 is a contrast that is set up. In the past, God spoke this way. Now he speaks this way and he's better now. And so stick to what he says now. And so in the, in the Old Testament, it was come. That is, remember the story of Exodus. Come to Mount Sinai, the first church, the first assembly. Come to God. But it wasn't merely come and do whatever you want, but it was to come in terror, remember that. That's, that's what we see here. Look at verse 18. It's a mountain that cannot be touched. Come, but come in terror. Be terrified, because it's burning with fire. It's to darkness, it's to gloom and storm. Moses himself, verse 21, have a look. He himself was terrified. Come, you can't come, but in terror. Be fearful. Why? Because some of you might even die. I mean, the animals died, those who touched the mountain. That was the word. But now, the encouragement is, well, he's got a better word for us. Now in the New Testament, it's come. It's not come to an earthly mountain, not Mount Sinai. It's why we don't need to be in Jerusalem. We don't need to be in, in, around that mountain. We come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Mount Zion. You see, the word now is, the word for us as a church, the word to the world is, the invitation is to the kingdom of God. Come and join that kingdom. And come now, not, not in terror. The word is, come in confidence. We've been hearing this. Come in confidence. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can come to God directly. Not terrified like we're going to die. We come in confidence. Chapter 10, we come in confidence because we can enter the most holy place. And what do we find now? Well, not, not, not the fear of death, but we find life. It's a better word. The second half of chapter 12 is really saying, listen to this word. Listen to what God has promised. You find life. The, the fear now is we won't be refused by God. If you are searching, I mean, we heard Jeremiah quote it in the testimony. If you are searching, you will find. We search, we won't be refused, we won't be rejected. And we come what? Come where? Well, well the picture here, verse 22. 
It's the beautiful picture of the glory of heaven. I mean, just imagine that picture. Verse 22. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. I mean, it was wonderful singing together. But just imagine. Thousands upon thousands of angels and saints from every generation singing praises to God. Come to that assembly. And then we read on, verse 22, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. There is something that is lasting in this word, in this invitation. It's not one that can be shaken and thrown away and disappear, but it's the unshakable kingdom. And how is it possible? Verse 24, it's what we've been learning in the whole book of Hebrews. Jesus is the great high priest. He's the one who has access to the heaven, heavenly, heavenly places, the holy of holies. He's at the right hand of God. Verse 24, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He established a way for us to be with God without fear, with confidence. And so the word is, come in confidence and find life. Life in God's unshakable kingdom. Everything will shake. And so if you were to imagine, if Jesus were to come again, it will be the end. This is it. You're either in or out. You're either part of his unshakable kingdom or you're not. And so even now, even though we're not yet in heaven, do you see the promise there? Our names are already written there. It means that that's where we belong. Heaven is where we belong. That is where our ultimate home is. I mean, life is sort of like a pilgrimage. We want to go home. We want to find our place. Well, here's the word. Will you listen? God has spoken. Will you listen? God has invited Will you accept? You see, for some of us here, we've been coming to church more recently, exploring Christianity. Some of us have been coming for many years. But have we really listened and accepted? I mean, if you think about our world today, our society, so many voices, so many opinions, so many options. We're saturated with information. But who will I ultimately listen to? My friends say, well, here is where you find true happiness. Fulfillment, pursue that path. Satisfaction, that's where you need to go. Or do I listen to God? Or do I listen to you know, the bright minds of our world, scientists, philosophers? This is what life and death is about. This is how we got here. Or do I listen to God? Do I listen to anyone else where I find hope? Or do I, I listen to God? You see, God has spoken. How do we want to be found as people who listen to the word of God? Because if we do, it will make a difference to our life. We listen, we'll live it out. If we listen well, we will live it out. If we have the root of faith, there will be the fruits to show it. I mean, we heard testimonies this morning. It was wonderful, wasn't it? It was wonderful because when they took hold of that faith, their life was changed. I mean, the fear, the anxiety, gone. There will be fruits to show it. Which means our lives, all of our lives, has to be radically different from the world around us. It has to be. If there is no difference between looking at your life and your mates, then something is amiss there. You see, our lives are meant to be radically different. No point listening to God without doing. No point believing without our lives being transformed. Theology that makes no difference is really bad theology. 
Because what Jesus wants and what Jesus wants to find amongst us is acceptable worship. Someone shared with me, a, a friend, who, who is exploring Christianity at the moment, thinking deeply about who Jesus is, reading his Bible. Shared with me recently, he, he shared about how he considered his mates. They dismissed the Bible, they dismissed the church, it's all brainwashing, you're, you're just you know, in a, a cult, your freedom's taken away, why would you live such a life? And then he's got his group of Christian friends. He looked at both. Well, these guys are making you know, the Bible as though it's untrue and God, well, who cares? He considered the lives of those who do not know God and those who do. And this is a guy who's still exploring the faith. He says, well, I'd rather have the life of those who do know God. Listening to God means that it has to be lived out. And this is how the letter ends, chapter 13. Now, when that was read out before, it felt like a whole list of ethical lessons. You know, it, it felt like maybe the author of Hebrews, he had so many things to talk about and didn't know where to put it in the letter. Now he's just grouped them all in chapter 13 and let's end this way. A whole bunch of lessons. But it wasn't like that. In fact, what he was doing is now, what you heard and what you believe, it has to make a difference to your life. And it affects every sphere, every aspect of our life if we are to live out the word of God. And so three spheres. There's our social responsibilities first. Second, our private responsibilities. And thirdly, our church or ecclesiastical responsibilities. Social, private, church. I'll touch on only some of these. There's a lot here. But firstly, our social responsibilities. Our social responsibilities. You believe in God has to make a difference. If this is not seen, it shows that your faith is a fake. It's a fraud. It's not for real. And so our social responsibilities, what are they? Well, they're captured in two words. It's loving the brother and loving the stranger. In fact, it comes from, from two Greek words. It's Philadelphia. Have you heard that? In the city of Philadelphia. It means the love of brother. And also philoxenia, lover of stranger. Love the brother and sister, love the stranger. And so we see chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Keep on loving each other as brothers. That's a Philadelphia word. Do not forget the, to entertain strangers. That's a philoxenia word. For by doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, what's that to bring to mind? Those who have entertain angels without even knowing it. I mean, it should remind us of the story of Abraham when he welcomed the three strangers into his home, not knowing that they were angels. Now, why is this important? Why is this an important mark of how we want Jesus to find us? That this group here at St. Stephen's, you, you are people who love each other and you are people who love strangers. Why is that important? It's important because if it is true, that there is a deep, genuine love that does not ask for something in return. It's sacrificial. It shows that we have understood Jesus. It shows that we have been shaped by Jesus. You see, it's not just loving those on the inside or those who are easy to love, but those on the outside. And so here's a point of application for you. Reflect on your life. If Jesus were to return and he's going to call into question your love, what will you say? How do you think we are going? 
How do you think we're going at loving each other? What do you think? What would Jesus find here? You see, there, there are good reasons why we're called brothers and sisters. I mean, we can pick our friends. You pick your friends. But we can't pick our family. I mean, all of us, we grow up in different households, but you grow up, and I know with my brothers, we had fights when we were young. I would always win, but anyway. But we still love each other. We're brothers, and we have a responsibility to each other. In the church family, the family of God, you don't get to pick your family. And so that's why we're such a mixed bunch of people here. And so like it or not, if Jesus is my Lord and my Saviour, and Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, then we are brothers and sisters. It's why we love to use the language of being a church family here, because that is what we want. That is what we are. That's what we want to reflect. And so how are we going at Philadelphia? Lover of brother and sister. To really love, it means then that I have to go beyond knowing just names, don't you think? Like if you really love each other, you have to go beyond knowing names. You have to know well enough so that you pray with each other, pray for each other, do life together, share joys and burdens, so that the relationship amongst us, it's not like a social club, thin and shallow. I mean, I think that would disappoint Jesus. If Jesus were to return and he sees that our relationship with each other is so thin and shallow, you know, any little thing and it can fall apart, I think he'll be disappointed. What we want is a church where the relationship is thick and deep. And so what do you think? A point of application. What do you think? How do you think we're going? Well, let me encourage you by sharing what I have seen in our church family over the years. And this will hopefully encourage you, but for many of us, hopefully it will challenge us. I'm not doing that. Maybe I can do that too. It's the handwritten card in times of sorrow and difficulties. It's always lovely to receive that, isn't it? It's the visit to the hospital in the nursing home. It's the spontaneous gift out of gratitude. Out of gratitude. It's the invitation, come and stay at my house. I know you're in a tough situation. Come and stay with us. Have we done that with each other? Several years ago when we were renovating, we stayed with two families, one for one month and another family for three months. It's helping out, mow the lawn. We need it. Not that I'm asking for that. It's the dropping off a meal. Because you know that something's just not right in that household. And you want to extend care. It's the come on a holiday with us. It's all paid for. These are things that I've seen in our church. It's the message of encouragement, the text, the email, the phone call just at the right time, to lift the spirits. It's a, here's a shoulder for you to cry on. I'll stay with you tonight. It's the many unseen service, work, labor of love that no one else notices. It's thick and deep. I mean, that will bring our Savior delight. So how do you think we're going at Philadelphia? 
Let's not be thin and shallow, but thick and deep. What about how we're going at philozenia, the love of strangers, where we get the word hospitality from. You see, in Roman society, you show hospitality to those you're hoping to get something out of. I invite you over. Hopefully, you invite me over to your place. But here, the, the encouragement is, I'm not in it for anything. I expect nothing in return. There is nothing in it for me at all. And so wouldn't it be nice, think about this each week, if all of us, we try to meet someone we have not yet met in the family of God, be sincere about knowing each other, not thin and shallow, but deep and thick. Wouldn't it be nice the next time we run, you know how we run the eat and share events, different households opening up their homes, Well, maybe next time, it might be you. I haven't done this before, but God has given me a home. Maybe I can use it to show hospitality, lover to the stranger. Wouldn't it be nice? I would love for this to be a a culture of our church. Every month, once a month, show some form of hospitality. Invite someone over to lunch. Invite someone out. But of course, it's strangers, not just here, but in our community, getting to know our neighbours. Some do that so well. Invite neighbours over to your home. I mean, wouldn't that be the type of church we want Jesus to find? Love of brother and sister, love of stranger. But of course, it's not internal willpower that will make me love. How will that happen? How will you love in such a radical way? Well, the example of Jesus is Jesus himself. Jesus says, I lay down my life for my friends. Jesus says, I went outside for those outside, so that they might come in. I went outside the camp, what we read later on. I went outside the city gate, so that they might come in. I lost my home. I left my home, so that you can find a home. I mean, isn't that the motivation? The love of Jesus himself? And so firstly, our social responsibility. Love of brother and sister, love of stranger. Secondly, our private responsibilities. And he speaks of two here. Our bed and our wallet. Our bed and our wallet. Firstly, verse 4. Marriage should be honoured by all. Notice that. Not just some. Not just those who are married. But the singles, the widows, everyone. And how? Verse 4. The marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Sexual sins always comes back to bite. One of the things we, we encourage during our premarital counselling is we always encourage them, if you have a past, you have to talk about it. You have to bring out into the open. There must be forgiveness. There must be repentance. You have to, there's always baggage with that, but it must be dealt with. And so that's why the warning is here how we think about our bed. It's why when I conduct weddings, one of the purposes of a Christian wedding, and it's made explicitly clear, is that marriage is between one man, one woman, for life. There's no other way. It's the only place where sexual expression is by God's design and is seen as right and pure in God's eyes. You see how radical that is? It shouldn't be. But you see how radical that is in our society. Even amongst some of the churches, what they say. 
calling what is evil good and what is good evil. But there's no way of getting around this. If we want to be listening to God's word and living it out, we have to treat the marriage bed as pure. You see, it was a problem back in Roman culture. They were very loose about their purity. It's no different today. In fact, I heard recently where my boys had their tutoring classes years ago. Right next to us, a brothel. Didn't even know that. How loose it is today. But of course, on a partial note, if it is something of your past, you come to Jesus, you know forgiveness, complete forgiveness in him. And so the marriage bed, but also the wallet, verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It means that our eyes, our hearts, aren't envious of what others have. There will always be someone who has more and bigger and greater. And perhaps this is something for us to be mindful of because of where we live, who we are, what we do. It's very easy to fall into this trap without even knowing it, and I include myself. You see, what is normal lifestyle that is expected in our, amongst us? But is it really hiding a love for money? I was challenged a few years ago when I went along to a funeral of a, a Presbyterian minister here in Melbourne. His daughter gave the eulogy and he said of, she said of her father that he was a man who never went on an overseas holiday, never purchased a home. In the eyes of many, in the eyes of maybe many of us even, we might be thinking, well, did he waste his life? How sad. Not that there's anything wrong with overseas holidays or buying a house. But you see, for him, it showed that he held to something far more tightly than the stuff of this world. And that was challenging. And so this is perhaps one area for all of us to consider. What will Jesus find if he comes? He looks at our heart. He checks our bank statements. Are we generous? Are we content? Because we can be, look at verse 5 and 6. Why can't we? Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Isn't that all we need if God is with us? Do I trust my entire existence upon my nest egg or my bank account when God says he's going to be with me? Don't I trust that God will provide? I mean, it's wonderful hearing Ishka and Jen before what they plan to do the next two years. They will have to trust God that God will provide. But then do you see again how countercultural it is, how we see our bed and how we see our wallet? You see, in the Roman world, in the ancient world, it was so vastly different. I love how Keller put it once. He said, The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and, money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. Isn't that so radical? Isn't that the type of life we want Jesus to find amongst us? Tight with our body, but so generous with our money. We share our bed with no one, but we share our table with everyone. How is that possible? Well, it's following the example of our Saviour. 
I mean, didn't Jesus say, I became poor, poor, filthy poor, dead poor, so that you might become rich. I lost it all so you can have it all. Our private responsibilities. And finally, our church responsibilities, our ecclesiastical responsibilities. What type of church do we want Jesus to find here? I really hope that he will find a church that he's pleased with, that won't bring him grief. I could not believe this was happening here. So how can we be that type of body? Well, there are high expectations upon everyone. If you are a leader, high expectations. If you are a member, high expectations on both sides. We need to listen to both sides. Look at verses 7 and 8. Remember your leaders. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the church. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And who is their faith in? Well, it's in Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Those who stick with the truth of Jesus, listen to them so that you don't get carried away by all sorts of teachings. And then we jump to verse 17. Not just remember and imitate, but more. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you, or more literally, they keep watch over your souls as men who must give an account. Obey them that their work will be a joy and not a burden. And the word there is, is a, a groaning, a joy and not a groaning. For that will be of no advantage to you. Now I reflected on this whole chapter and I reflected on that part of this passage a fair bit this week. Verse 17, isn't that the favourite verse of pastors? Absolutely not. In fact, it's one of the most terrifying verses for pastors. Most terrifying, why? I mean, pastors are shepherds. But pastors are only under shepherds who must one day Give account to the chief shepherd. Do you think that's terrifying? Absolutely terrifying. The scrutiny of God upon elders in our church, upon our staff team, it's far deeper and far more precise than any scrutiny of man and woman. I mean, as pastor, I fear God far more than I fear you. And I think you should praise God for that. I fear God more than I fear you. I serve you as your servants. I heard this once as a pastor. We need to keep this in mind. I serve you as your servant, but you are not my master. Jesus is. You see, our elders in our church, our ministry staff team, the expectations are as high as heaven. We're called to faithfully teach the word of God. Do not get it wrong. We are called to live a life that is worth imitating. Have you thought about that burden? Sure. I mean, look at my life, the elder's life, and imitate them. Look at Michelle's life, imitate her. Really? You know how big of a burden that is? Because one day we'll have to give account to God. It's why we're so careful in whom we appoint as elders and take on as staff. And it's why the expectation upon the church matches what is expected of leaders. Remember, imitate, obey, submit. 
which was one of the last promises in the vows made today in the profession of faith. Do you commit to submitting to the authority of the session as they exercise partial oversight? And so let me ask you, what will Jesus find? What will Jesus find? Will he be pleased in this area? Those of us who are leaders, those of us who are members. I leave it for you to consider. But the hope is, what's the hope? The hope is that there will be joy for all, leaders and members. Not a groaning for leaders. Church can make it a joy for leaders or a burden for leaders. Yvonne and myself, we reflected on this quite often on our day off. We always count it a joy and a privilege because we consider the life we lived and we think, well, who are we to be entrusted with so many souls? We count it a joy and a privilege. But often I do hear stories where it is hard for pastors and it's uncomfortable when I hear it. Within the last year, in our denomination, in our state, two Presbyterian ministers in their 30s, young, have resigned from the ministry. Not because of moral failure. Not because they were immoral. But because of too much groaning. Too heavy of a burden. Keep that in mind. It's why with our church responsibilities, the final one is important. Let us pray. Verse 18. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honourably in every way. And so here's a little plug to join the prayer meeting each Sunday morning. Listen to God's word. Live out God's word socially, privately, and ecclesiastically. And ultimately, finally, and it will be brief. What is it all for? Why do what we do? Why be who we are? Why gather? It is ultimately for the glory of Christ. We listen to God. We live out his word. We love our brothers and sisters. We love the stranger. We remain pure. We, radically, we are radically generous. We lead humbly. We submit and obey. Why? For the glory of Christ. And this is the grand finale. And I reckon this prayer is this benediction. How can we do it? We don't have it in ourselves to do it. What do we need? This is the grand finale. This is the prayer and we'll end with this prayer. May the God of peace, which means the God who welcomes us, the God who will never reject us or abandon us, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, the one to whom we all must one day give account, especially leaders. Equip you. How can you do it? You have no capacity in yourself. How can you do it? He will equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing in him, because that's how we want to be found, pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen.